Phantom Sway podcast. Music, books, ritual human sacrifice. Wait, 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 wait. Not that last one. PhantomSway.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of How Inappropriate. I am your host, Kira Allen. This is the podcast where we ask the question, could this movie get made today? Uh, With me for our movie this week is the co-host of the Midnight Movie Cowboys podcast, John Grace. John, welcome to the show. Hello. Glad to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I've been doing the Midnight Movie Cowboys podcast as sort of a co-host for, uh, gosh, about seven years now, I think. Wow, that long? Almost. It, see, I, sometimes I think it's five, sometimes I think it's seven. <laughs> because originally it was uh, Stuart Balk and Hunter Dusing's, uh podcast, and uh, they added me in when the previous podcast I was in was uh, canceled and removed from the internet, so... Uh, they wanted my voice in there so they could produce more episodes and, uh, you know, re- drop episodes more frequently. And uh, I joined in and we had the good chemistry uh, talking about old cult movies and sometimes new releases. And uh, sometimes we, we covered non-movie stuff like uh, true crime. We were covering this. Uh, now they call him the Golden State Killer, but we were calling him uh, Irons. Uh Long before that was a big thing, we did probably the first uh, – detailed podcast on that case uh before anybody else so uh you know we we, we're uh we have a lot of variety you know we interview documentary filmmakers and uh people crowdfunding for films which is a very common thing these days oh great Uh, yeah yeah and we we have uh We've covered all sorts of stuff, and we do like to talk about Burt Reynolds on occasion. So. Awesome. That's so great. I'm probably, yeah, I'm the best <laughs> pick for this, this podcast. Probably. Oh, we've had some amazing guests the last couple of weeks. I, I, Brandon Morris and I did Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and it turns out he is a huge fan of that. Uh, yeah. has, like knows the movie by heart. And then last week, Sonny Loman and I did Pretty Woman, and it turned out she was a huge fan of that movie and could quote the whole thing. So this makes me so happy. I'm three for three so far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but, well, let's get right into it, because this week we are doing the 1981 road movie classic, Cannonball Run, um, directed by... Hal Needham. Hal Needham, yes, thank you. Um, who also did Smokey and the Bandit and did Cannonball Run 2 after this. And he and Burt Reynolds did a lot of Hooper, work together. Hooper. Hooper, right. Hooper. I, you you mentioned Hooper. I've never seen Hooper. I've never oh, seen well, I, I can't recommend it. But, uh, <laughs> I'm told it is great to see with a live, like with an audience. Like if, if you can catch it at a revival screening, do go because it's a rowdy uh, sort of a crowd-pleasing movie. It's something you see with a crowd. I see. But you watch it on home video, it's like, what's so funny about this? Bert's cackling and all that, you know? <laughs> yeah, I kind of had this experience with this movie. Have you ever seen Cannonball Run before, before we get started? Yes, I saw it on uh, HBO multiple times yes. in uh, 1982, where they seem to run it every day. Uh, turns out, I think they may have, I think they purchased the home video rights, so it gave them a a good license to show it all the time. Yeah, I, that was my experience with this movie, too. I, I don't remember it in theaters, but it is a movie that 
there was a good two or three years there where like it was on TV all the time. And I watched yeah. it every time because back then you just watched what came on. You, you right. didn't have a lot of options. You couldn't choose. And also, I mean, it was hugely successful in 1981. Uh, looking up, you know, looking up the info about it, it was like the number six highest grossing film in America, in North America that year. And uh, I remember friends of mine had seen it or they'd gone to see it because apparently it was that was the thing about Burt Reynolds movies. They were the biggest thing going in theaters from about, I'd say, 77 to, well, probably about 1982, 83. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, I mean, it came in number six, but, I mean, it was up against some really heavy hitters like Indiana Jones. This was a huge movie year. Yeah, yeah, and it was, that's probably the very peak of Burt making uh, the car crash comedies that are now blamed, even by Bird himself, for destroying his career. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they made money, but there's something about you may, you can make the first one and it'll be really good, like Smokey and the Bandit, but if you make too many that are sort of mediocre or middling or nobody really wants to watch them again, who's an adult that pay, who buys the movie tickets, then your audience just doesn't does it come to the next one? And they did not attend Stroker Ace at all. That, <laughs> that killed him. And that was his, uh, I think that was his Hal Needham follow-up. Um, after he did a really good movie called uh, Sharky's Machine, which was his, oh. his attempt to do a serious cop movie and kind of off the formula that he'd established with the car crash comedies. And uh, it was a really good film and it did well, but he couldn't really continue that quality in vain. And, and also... He made City Heat where he had his injury. That right. We, we can get into that later because that's a whole dark subject and uh, shows how ugly Hollywood can, can be to their biggest stars. Oh, yeah. I want to hear about that then. Let's get into that later. That, that sounds interesting. Well, let's just start at the, at the top. This movie um, is awful. <laughs> I'm just going <laughs> to say that. I did not enjoy it. I mean, as I said before, I remember when I was a kid mm-hmm. thinking that this was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. I mean, I right. loved Captain Chaos. I was a huge Dom, um, Dom DeLuise fan forever, and because of this character in this movie, and <laughs> I, I know. And then I uh, realized when I was watching it again, oh my gosh, this movie is really bad. It's yeah, it's barely a movie. Hardly. It has an all-star cast, and and they run. I mean, the credits run for a good five minutes at the beginning of the movie because there are so many names in this movie. I mean, there's of course there's Burt Reynolds, Dom DeLuise, there's Farrah Fawcett, there's Roger Moore, there's Terry Bradshaw, um, gosh, Sammy Davis Jr. and <laughs> Dean Martin show up in this. Adrian uh, Barbeau, Adrian Jackie, Jackie Chan, Jackie Michael Chan. Okay, <laughs> I forgot that. I didn't realize that Jackie Chan was in this movie. Yeah. Like, back then, he wasn't Jackie Chan. And so when I watched it again, I was like, oh, my God, Jackie Chan is in this movie? And talk about inappropriate. I mean, he's Chinese, and he's playing a Japanese race car driver. Yeah, and the reason he's in the film is because it's produced by Raymond Chow. It was technically, it is a Hong Kong co-production because Golden Harvest was this very successful uh, studio in Hong Kong that had produced the Bruce Lee movies and 
they'd made a fortune off of the Michael Hoy comedies and they had just signed Jackie Chan. He'd made one big hit for them, uh, The Young Master, and they made an American co-production for him, uh, The Big Brawl. And they wanted to keep up this idea that Jackie Chan was the next big thing, and they wanted him to be a global superstar, sort of like Bruce Lee was. So they put Jackie in the Cannonball Run, and it's almost sort of a way to say to promote him to American audiences because they were supposed to follow. Okay, I'll, I'll have to backtrack a little. The Big yeah. Brawl was supposed to be a hit. It was released coast to coast in American theaters. It did okay. It did decent money, but. They didn't follow it up with anything. So Jackie went back to being obscure. And by the time they made The Protector with Danny Aiello, because I guess everybody wanted that team up. uh, (laughs) By the time they made that, they made it with an American director that didn't understand Jackie Chan's screen persona. And it was such a bad film. They barely released it in theaters and it got dumped on video. And so Jackie went back to being a Hong Kong, uh, Japan, Taiwan, and... Uh, believe it or not, countries in Africa, he would he was very oh, popular. Wow. You're in some European countries, his stuff would play theaters, but he was back to being this huge global superstar that was uh, obscure in America and best known for the Cannonball Run. So this was this movie was sort of propaganda, I guess, in a way to get Jackie Chan over with American audiences, despite his uh, short screen time. And Michael Huey was their their big right. comedy director, right. star, really skilled. I love his Hong Kong comedies, but um, he was also very popular in Japan, and so was Jackie. And it's unique for a Chinese or a Hong Kong star to be big in Japan because of, you know, not every – they don't love kung fu films in Japan right. because they're Japanese. Right. So, but Jackie was huge in Japan, and so was Michael Hui. It was very strange to see Hong Kong comedy – uh, actually do well in Japan. So he was. they were put in there as insurance to make sure this movie was a hit in Japan. And it was a smash in Japan and was apparently the only reason Cannonball Run 2 was made. Oh, was my because, gosh. Because it was so big in Japan, they could say, okay, it could flop in America, but it'll make money in Japan, so it'll make its money back there. Isn't that <laughs> fascinating? And now we make movies for China. <laughs> Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's weird how that's all been reversed lately. But yeah, Roger Moore was in this. Roger Moore was probably the highest paid actor in the world uh, this year, that year that this was made. I mean, because the James Bond movies, he would hold out for every one and they would just come up with his fee. Man. And it was it was a big number at the time. You know, this was before the likes of Jim Carrey were getting 20 million a movie. It was This was like he would get... You know, if Roger Moore, say, got $5 million, that was a huge deal. Yeah, I but, think I read that Burt Reynolds got $5 million for this movie, and right. that was, like, unheard of. Biggest star in America. And if you think about it, Farrah Fawcett was probably the biggest sex symbol uh, of the 70s in, in terms of a female sex symbol. And uh, Burt was the big male sex symbol, so that was a big deal have both of them in this film i wonder Although i'd be curious no chemistry no, no. Chemistry at all. <laughs> none i'd be curious to know how much she got paid for that part it was a lot it was a lot. she was still a big deal back then yeah i just wonder if it, it probably wasn't anywhere near burt reynolds money no and I, I think the budget i think raymond chow's uh hong kong money went to basically paying the actor's salaries and it certainly didn't go into the production no it didn't <laughs> the production values are basically hal needham's Stunt buddies yes. and his stunt crew just doing a bunch of second unit car racing and, um, uh, you know, chases and weird timing slapstick comedy with Tom DeLuise 
obviously improving through scenes. <laughs> well, that, it, let's tell let's tell our audience in case there's anyone out there who hasn't seen this, who doesn't know what this is about. This is about a, a cross country race from uh, New Jersey or Connecticut to California. Uh, called the Cannonball Run, um, based on a real race. And it's just basically all of these characters racing to get to California first to win the big prize. And then the rest of them, that's all it is. That's all it is. <laughs> yeah. People just, it's a lot of road gags. It's its one big setup for gags. And I didn't know before I started researching this movie that the director was a stunt coordinator i didn't know until after i watched the movie it made a whole lot more sense when i knew that <laughs> when i figured that out but i didn't and hell need him by the way it's it's extremely accomplished in yeah. the in the stunt world i mean by no means is this is this some you know independent inexperienced guy i mean he's been in the business and done some of the, some of the hardest things you can do in the business and frankly i don't think to this day that stunt coordinators um and stunt artists get enough credit for what they do in movies not at all no they and, don't get oscars they don't get any nope. they get no award recognition except and it's, among- it, i mean it is as important as if especially if you have an action film as important as the you know the sound as the soundtrack i we yep. just finished my writing partner and i just finished um filming a short film based on the based on Harriet Tubman, just kind of a retelling of of her as an action hero. And we had to work with a stunt coordinator and she made the character into a cool character. Do you know what I mean? Before she was just a lady right. saying lines, but then the stunt coordinator came in and turned her into a real badass action hero. And that took she, skill. She, she yeah. turned her in uh, Cleopatra Jones. Basically. Basically. <laughs> <Amp> career. <laughs> yep. And but again, that's not I I as a director and the writer, I couldn't have made her that. You know, I just right. I just had a whole new respect for what stunt artists do. So anyways, that's what it is. It's just a lot of car chases. There's a lot of there's John, there is a lot of cars uh driving through walls, windows, mm-hmm. pools, multiple <laughs> Multiple, multiple right. walls. I just can't believe that. I mean, so many innocent people were put in danger in yeah. the course well, of this the, film. Well, uh, Hal Needham, it's funny. If you can watch an old, like a John Wayne movie like McHugh, and he's shooting a mob guy on the beach who does a flip, and you look closely to Hal Needham with those glasses and everything, and, and you could spot him in old westerns. Oh, wow. horses. So, yeah, I mean, he, his work was all over the place, like in the 60s and 70s, and... Um, when he his film debut, Smoking and the Bandit, made a fortune, and I don't think it cost anything. Uh, that was just a huge hit, and his he was the hottest director in Hollywood for a while. And critics hated him, but that gave him kind of a populist appeal because he would, he, if okay, Smoking and the Bandit too, which is a horror. It's actually worse than this. <laughs> it's an awful movie. I can't even get through it. It just looks like they're all drunk on the set and goofing off. And they that's probably, probably are. What it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, it opened to these, these crazy box office numbers, and so and critical panning uh, across the country when maybe that meant something because uh, most newspapers would hire a film critic. Uh, nowadays they don't; it's all syndicated or whatever. Or you know, everybody reviews movies on the web, so there's no need for that scene. So Hal Needham took out an ad in Variety, and I think he showed himself with like a bag of money running away or something, or uh, you know, just some. 
uh, thing, thanking the critics <laughs> for the bad reviews and because it guaranteed the high grosses. And if you look at, at Cannonball Run and you look at his films, they were very aimed at that middle America blue collar audience that liked to see cars get smashed up and liked to see Bert flirt with good looking women and <laughs> yeah. usually get them, you know, yeah. and uh, it's that's just totally what the aim was. And that was the audience. And that's where it probably made the most money. I'd love to see a box office breakdown of what this made in, you know, say Missouri or uh, yeah. Texas yeah. as opposed to New York or even California. But I mean, well, we'll that, read- that's what this is. Yeah, well, we'll read uh, Roger Ebert's review uh, oh, a little bit I'm later. Oh, sure it was a rave. It was not very good. He didn't Roger. appreciate it at all. <laughs> um, this movie, I at the top, I mean, we basically it just starts out. We see all of all of these people that people race in teams of two. So we see each team coming to the meeting place, the, the starting point. It's where we get to know everybody. We meet Burt Reynolds and his partner, Dom DeLuise, who seems to have a split personality that they right. re- they refer to as him. Um, <laughs> and that took me a while to catch on to. Because it's been a while since I've seen this movie, so I couldn't remember yeah. all of the nuance of it. The nuance, that's hilarious. That's not a word to use with this movie. I, I apologize. But right. um, so we meet Burt. And of, I mean, Burt Reynolds is Burt Reynolds. I mean, he's hot you know brash he's that mane of that head of hair my goodness that this is his best toupee that he had (laughs) probably within a five-year uh period this is comparable to the toupee uh gosh maybe going back to gator gator had a pretty good toupee we they there it was quite impressive it was quite yeah. impressive. Yeah, it, I just wanted to run my hands through it. But it, it is Shatner-esque. It, it's it's very surely is. There's a reason why he was a sex symbol. I mean, he really does ooze it on screen, even in this stupid movie, you know? Right. Um, and so we meet, uh, we see Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin rat packing it up. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just every person in this movie was just there for a gag, like... They just played the Rat Pack, and then there was Roger Moore just played Roger Moore. Yeah, or he played a Jewish, a rich Jewish kid who thought he was Roger Moore. So (laughs) apparently the original script, he was supposed to think he was James Bond, but they were afraid of a lawsuit from the Broccoli's. So they, uh, which I think they almost had anyway. I think they almost did, yeah. Right, because there is a story that Hal Needham told in his autobiography that he went in to meet Cubby Broccoli about directing a James Bond movie, which I find laughable because he's not the type of director you get for that sort of thing. But Cubby Broccoli said, I should be suing you for uh, the Cannibal Run, <laughs> which, right. which you had run. We're doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's probably pretty lucky, and probably because he had friends in high places at that time is the only reason that he right. didn't uh, get sued. But yeah, I mean, everybody was just kind of there, like hamming it up. Um, I have here is Dom DeLuise the Jonah Hill of the 1980s? Uh, you know, the funny thing about Dom DeLuise, and I didn't realize this until I started collecting those old NBC Dean Martin shows on DVD uh, because they were offering them through the mail for a while. There was a big TV ad. You could buy the Dean Martin hour or whatever. And uh, I noticed that if you go to a thrift store or you go to a used CD store, you will find, sometimes you'll find shelves of them unopened. Like they were bought for a relative who never watched them. (laughs) And so I started watching them and 
Dom DeLuise was a regular on that show, like in the early 70s, and his whole routine, like, it was weird because the sketches in there were very, it seemed very improvised. Like, they weren't following a script, as they, a lot of the comedy in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was this ongoing, recurring sketch of Dom DeLuise and Nipsey Russell playing somewhat vaguely gay, well, blatantly gay uh, barbers. And Dom DeLuise would improvise so much they would crack each other up all the time. And, of course, Dean would come in and he'd always crack up during the sketches. That was part of the, the catch. And I think this may have been what made it big was being a sketch performer on TV. Wow. And then he, he was friends with Burt Reynolds, and Burt put him in stuff like The End. And uh, I think he might have been in Silent Movie with Mel Brooks and, uh, and Burt. And, uh, it, you know, he did a lot of uh, those type of comedies and was kind of Burt's fat sidekick. Yeah, and they that, do have good chemistry. Right, right. And then, yeah. of course, you see, you watch the, we'll get into the outtakes later, but you see Burt just seems like an abusive bully. Yeah. <laughs> just slapping, I know, I thought that Slapping too. him. I'm like, oh my gosh. What? Yeah, that's, that's the weird thing it about Burt's appeal. I will talk to people and they don't, you know, younger than me, some are my age, and they don't get why Burt was such a big star in the 70s. And I'm like, well, it's it's hard to explain these days because he was like this bully that wouldn't like – I know it's a strange thing. He was like this alpha male bully, but uh, he wasn't racist. He would help out anybody. He was just like – he was a good old boy, but he loved abusing his his – it's a a weird thing to explain like he's cool to the women all the girls wanted him all the men wanted to have a beer with him because he just seemed like one of the guys it's a real like he was a man's man it's it's a type of star we don't have today i agree i totally agree he's a man yeah he's a man's man you hit the nail on the head yeah. yeah, we don't have. Yeah, we don't have that anymore. Not really. We don't even barely have real movie stars anymore. No, you they don't can't exist. Put somebody in a movie and be like, "This is like." The, I think the last remaining movie star, and he's struggling, is Tom Cruise. Yeah, he's he's really grasping. Uh, we had it with Denzel Washington, but mm-hmm. he's he's retired. He's getting older. Yeah, he's, he's getting, getting older. older. He's making those artsy films nobody wants to see. And, and why and not? He, yeah, because right. he can do whatever he's he wants. He's achieved that point. <laughs> yeah, you know. That's what he he should he should do what he wants to do by now. Uh, uh, Will Smith until he started forcing his uncharismatic son uh, into audience <laughs> members. It's like Will Smith had it made, and then you know started yeah. the nepotism creeped in and yeah. messed him. But, yeah, I uh, can't think of any like person that drives a movie these days. Like this movie is the reason how Needham made it and it made so much money is because he put Burt Reynolds in it. And Burt Reynolds said he did it as a favor. But that was the reason, you know, it was a Burt Reynolds movie and that's what you were going to see at the theater. You were going to see Clint Eastwood in a Clint Eastwood film. You know, I, there's no, there's almost no, there are franchises that I see, but there's almost nobody outside of Denzel who I still will watch anything he does. I that you could, yeah, you're right. There's just no Burt Reynolds in 2018. No, there's no real what you would call a real man, like yeah. who's like, <laughs> no. yeah, blue collar guy, you know. Yeah, we're all in the. It's the age of Judd Apatow now, and ner- right, right. nerds, it, and yeah. Every everybody's a writer, a playwright, yeah. or yes. or scientist, <laughs> you know. <laughs> or you know, the closest you might get is somebody like. 
Keanu Reeves playing a retired hitman who just wants to walk away from the business. You know, you just get that sort of thing, but you don't have anything like a Burt Reynolds. It's it's a really strange time to be in the movies. I, I often say that if I was a kid today, I don't know if I'd be in the movies at all. I'd probably just be playing video games. No, and that's what my kids are into. Like YouTube right. and video games, they don't they don't really want to go to the movies unless it's like Avengers or something big, you right. know. But yeah, no, they're not. Look, they don't have movie posters of in their rooms. They don't have, you know, pull out posters from magazines of their favorite stars. They spend very uh-huh. little time watching TV and movies. It Not doesn't exist anymore. It's, no. weird. it's funny you mention that, the pull-out posters and stuff. The, that type of movie magazine doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Uh, dude, like I, I used to have a Ralph Macchio wall in my room. So <laughs> it was just the pull-out posters of Ralph Macchio. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just... Like I would, I would buy magazines devoted to martial arts films. I would buy magazines about, you know, when sci-fi was big for me for a couple of years when I was a kid, or um, uh, action films or whatever. But you'd see there were movie magazines, and they were there was a sense of glamour to them and uh, otherworldliness of, uh, you know, somebody like Clint Eastwood would seem like a god to a kid who likes action movies. Yeah, or absolutely. Charles Bronson. Bronson, people forget Bronson was a huge star. He's like a hipster joke now, but he was a huge star in the 70s. We did Death Wish on this show. Great episode. I'll have to listen to that. I only listened to one previous show just to get an idea of the format, and uh, I'll have to listen to Death Wish. Yeah, that was a good one. Right, and it's like, and Bronson, it's like now they laugh at his acting or it seems campy. It's like, no, back then that was... That type of slow burn acting method was was very beneficial for a movie like Death Wish. Yeah, and wouldn't you say? And where I know we're getting sidetracked, but there's not a whole lot to talk about with this movie. (laughs) Well, well, if you listen to the Midnight Movie Cowboys, we could call it the Midnight Movie Tangents because we we tend we tend to go off topic so much, and we get into all these other subjects. But then we'll get all this like these raves like we'll get bad reviews on itunes saying that we never talk about the movie but then we'll have like listeners say that was awesome how you guys talked about encyclopedia britannica for 10 minutes (laughs) fascinating yeah it's just like because we'll have some weird story to get into or whatever but uh but with this film it's plotless so it's and it doesn't doesn't have a real tight structure at all like it has a screenplay credit and i looked it up (laughs) on imdb and they claim it was uh Made, it was originally written as an action film for Steve McQueen. Right. So I'm thinking, but when they hired Burt, it turned into a comedy. But I'm thinking, well, hell, it must have been like uh, they just threw the script out. And Hal Needham said, well, I'll just have these guys improvise and, and come up with gags because none of it seems very planned. Like some of the dialogue between Burt and Farah, it's like I guess there's some intended joke there or something, but it's really hard to figure out. I, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was just a a series of vignettes really strung together. There wasn't, I forgot to mention the female racing team, by the way, which I called them the boob twins. Um, And I, I did want to say, John, that I, they are the ones I remember most from this movie, from being a kid, because when you're a young kid and you see boobies on the screen, it's like, ooh, boobs. And like, as a little girl, it's like, ooh, am I going to have those someday? <laughs> and I just remember that they had those skin-tight racing jumpers on, and then the zippers never went up on yeah. them. I mean, they were only... Right. And, and think, think about this. It's a PG-rated movie. 
Yeah. There was no there was no PG thirteen. This is a PG rated movie with with and they're not the only like uh, boob jokes in the film. Oh, like there's there's a, pun, there's a, a bunch of them. yes. <laughs> and this is a PG rating, and uh, it, it's uh, that's that's the trippy thing about it. And of course, I when I was a kid listening to my friends talk about the movie, they would they would always mention the racing team, you know, the Adrian Barbeau and Tara Buckman, and I was like. Uh, I didn't know what they meant until I saw it on cable, and I kind of got it. But they do, <laughs> they do get a, a good gag out of that because apparently, the first couple of state troopers that pull them over and mm-hmm. totally f- their their gimmick or their ruse, uh, one of them was Burt Reynolds' stand-in and looks just like Burt Reynolds. The other also has a Burt Reynolds mustache. <laughs> and then, like, the third time they're pulled over by a state trooper, the gag is it's Valerie Perrine, who was known for her big chest. And oh, I didn't know. I didn't know yeah. she was somebody. Right, right. She was a big deal in the '70s because she was uh, she was in uh, whatever the uh, the movie about Lenny Bruce that starred Dustin Hoffman. I still haven't seen it. I I, went, I need to check it out eventually. Uh, like she was in that. She had a lot of attention as she was going to be the next big thing. Didn't really happen, but everybody remembers the role in Superman the movie where she was Lex Luthor's uh, mall whatever her name was, Miss Tessmacher or Tessbacher or whatever. I haven't seen that movie in years, but uh, she was really memorable in that. She was vamping it up in basically a kid's superhero movie. <laughs> and, but we had uh, different standards then. Yeah, yeah. We just did. Well, we uh, we assumed boys, and I mean like nine-year-old boys, liked looking at shapely women on screen. <laughs> well, we I, didn't deny that was yeah. going to be a future for them. We We actually admitted they would like looking at Raquel Welch and it's a PG rated movie, you know? Well, I, I mean, I, my husband and I have tried to rewatch some eighties classics with our kids over the years. I remember we put on Goonies, um, Mm -hmm. a few years back and the kids were still a bit younger and I had to turn it off because there was so much bad language in it and there was so much sexuality, like sexual talk in it. And I'm like, man, I forgot. Like we didn't care about this stuff in the eighties. Like no one, I don't remember one adult saying this is inappropriate for you to watch or listen to. But I was like, Oh, I can't, my kids can't watch this. (laughs) Right, right. And um, I often bring this up on on our show is like back in the 70s and 80s, there seemed to be a thing in pop culture about encouraging children to grow up and maybe grow up too quick. But because it was the latchkey generation, Mm -hmm. uh, I think there was almost a thing like you don't stay in childhood for very long because I was watching James Bond movies when I was like eight years old and loving them. And, uh, and I found out this was not common among my friends, <laughs> but I was a latchkey kid. So I was able to see a lot of stuff like that. And I didn't think anything twice about it. You know, it didn't make me a bad person or anything, but nowadays it's unthinkable because, uh, you look at movies today and let's say you watch these Seth Rogen movies or whatever. And it's like, he's a man child and he's annoying. And I, I just spend the whole time wanting Burt Reynolds to walk onto the film and start slapping him. Because yeah, well, I was gonna say this uh, earlier. Like, don't you think that that is a reason? Brandon Morrison and I talked about this in our Bill and Ted's uh, episode. But don't you think that's kind of a reason why, like, when a movie like Taken or John Wick comes along, that people like freak out over it because we don't get to see that alpha male so much right. anymore? No, totally, totally. That's what um, in Taken, uh, Liam Neeson looks like wimp dad in the beginning. And then he's like super badass alpha male dad for the rest of the film, you know, just uh, basically going all Steven Seagal in in uh, France, and uh, that that's just like, and I think people 
people want to see that type of movie and it's not really offered to them very often. Yeah, I agree. We get the Seth Rogen man baby movies, right. which I not the, enjoy. He's the only one. There's a, yeah. a lot of them are like that. A lot of com- every comedy is about some man child who won't grow up. Adam Sandler, whoever. It, it doesn't matter. It's always and then the, the same thing. And then the and then the really masculine alpha guy is like the joke. He's right, like, right. You he's, know, he's like the bully. yeah. Uh, Taylor Kitsch or whoever, you know, yeah. <laughs> like getting his just desserts yeah. by the end of the film. You know, he's gonna he's gonna get the trump card pulled on him, and he's gonna get his just desserts. He's gonna get, you know, the the revenge will be taken on him for bullying the the man child character when he was in the seventh grade. Yeah, well, even though the point of that bullying was to probably make the man child grow the hell up. So you know, some people deserve to be bullied. I strongly believe that. No. But, uh, but like, okay, like Dom, like Dom DeLuise improvising, I said, it seemed to be a routine. He got for the Dean Martin show. And so here's Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. obviously improvising and yucking up jokes they yeah. think are very funny yeah. and no one else does. Yeah. And Dino's doing the drunk act, and I mean, which he did better than anybody. And Sammy, I don't even know what the hell he's doing at this point in his career because he's, uh, you know, he had a lot of attention for being, I, 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 I remember like he, he was, of course, part of the Rat Pack, and then he, like, converts to Judaism or whatever, and is involved with, like, running around, like, I I guess he was uh, doing with Linda Lovelace and other shady characters in the 70s, and uh, it's kind of weird because in this film he's playing a a really strange character, like, I I, I guess an exaggeration of himself, but when I see Sammy, I think about this episode of The Rifleman in the 60s where he played a Scarface gunfighter, and he was excellent. Mm -hmm. He was Great. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, I didn't know Sammy could act like that. And I would see him in other movies and he was really good. But then by by the Cannonball Run, he's not even trying. He's just playing a whiny, you know, wussy character. Yeah, they were like, just picking up paychecks. They, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't, it was sad. I mean, and I'm a huge Rat Pack fan. And my favorite mm-hmm. movie, which I own in several formats, is um robin and his seven hoods oh yeah and uh i can sing sammy with a tommy gun i can (laughs) sing every song from that yes i love it when my gun goes bang bang okay don't get me started that's a great movie it's great fun great movie and uh so to see him and dean martin like you say like they so they're a racing team and they uh, everybody's got a gimmick to get them across the country fast. So they decide if we dress up like priests, we'll never get pulled over or arrested. So they, that's, <laughs> that's their act. And I guess that's funny that they're supposed to be priests because A, Sammy Davis Jr. is black. B, he's Jewish, which he shows us at some point, but he takes Star of David necklace out and says, I'm Jewish. Dean Martin's got his drunk thing going on. And I guess that that's funny. And you're right. There's no lines. Like every scene with them is just like, can we do it? Should we do it? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. You yeah, want to know? It's Dean Martin slurring. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, Rrr. and then it's Sammy like, Davis Jr. repeating whatever he says. Right. Right. And then there's a, there's a scene where uh, Dean Martin is hitting on Tara Buckman and Adrian Barbeau. And it's implied, I guess he was trying to get a threesome going with them. But you have to read between the lines, and then he goes, well, "We're from a very liberal wing of the Vatican," or whatever. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's one of the only decent gags in there. And, and, but of course, it seemed completely improvised. And uh, uh-huh. the like, I don't know why I didn't know priests got out of speeding tickets. Watching this as an adult, I don't, I didn't see how that gimmick 
really worked. But it was, you yeah. know, it was, and it didn't. It just the gimmick was Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin as priests. Right. That was it. It was just an excuse oh, to put them in bodies. <laughs> edge. Right it wasn't. It was. It, it. It was sad to see. You know, after knowing the legacy that they came from, it just clearly right. they needed money. You know, clearly they needed some cash, and we're just trading on. And and that's all, really, John. I mean, that is what they do the whole movie. They just pop up scene to scene, and yeah. they do their little Rat Pack shtick. It, it doesn't advance the thin plot at all. There's right. no, they have no purpose in, in this movie. Yeah. Sammy's like on the phone constantly and just yelling on the phone. With somebody. <laughs> and then Dino's just stumbling around. It just doesn't, I, I don't know. I, I, I was wondering if maybe culturally I was missing out on a reference or something, but uh, you know, I, I've seen their other work and this doesn't, it's not calling back anything. I'm not, I'm not thinking of anything else when I, when I watch it, like I, I don't, I don't like. Okay, I can understand why Peter Fonda is the head biker because mm-hmm. Peter Fonda was known for his oh, biking. Everybody, biker uh, if you were wondering if Peter Fonda shows up in this ro- in this movie as an aging biker, he does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It Along fights with Jackie Chan. Yeah, it, it fights you got Jackie that. Chan. Yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, it, yeah. Peter Fonda pops in for a cameo, it, it, and forever, John Peter Fonda. That's a cultural reference that is hard for me to get. I've only ever seen Peter Fonda until maybe the nineties when he started doing some independent films and getting back out there. I'd only ever known him as a cameo actor playing this version of this iconic role in American graffiti. Is it? Uh, Um, no, well, easy rider, easy rider. I'm sorry. Captain America. Yeah. And he did, um, he did a number of films like Easy Rider was huge, and then he would do stuff like China Syndrome, I, I think. Was he in the, No, he wasn't in the China Syndrome. I'm thinking of – he was at a movie called something like Night of the Dwarves or Dance of the Dwarves. He did a lot of cheap exploitation and horror films and vigilante movies in the 70s, uh, I guess because of his friendship with Roger Corman. But I know him mainly from uh, Easy Rider, which is – probably hasn't aged really well, but it's a culturally interesting movie. And um, I also know him from The Wild Angels, which was uh, – Roger Corman's big biker film that I think sort of made Peter Fonda a star. That's where okay. he made the statement to the priest, what, we just want the freedom to ride our machines and not be hassled by the man. And tons of grunge bands have sampled that, that audio bite uh, for their rock songs. And uh, it's, it's, that's what I mainly know him for. But uh, uh, yeah, he, did, he did a great Western called The Hired Hand that people should really go out and try to see. Uh, he made it in like 1976. It's fantastic. It's oh, a okay. really really great western of the 70s and hardly anybody has seen it and it's phenomenally good i finally saw it for the first time just a few years ago and blew me away cool well yeah, yeah he just pops in for a minute anyways like got that paycheck yeah we got that paycheck we've just man there's a lot of people in this movie just picking up a paycheck uh uh, uh who else mel did tillis I miss? mel tillis stuttering Mel, you wouldn't you wouldn't make that today. Mel, that would not be made today. Mel Tillis and Terry Bradshaw. I called them their ripoff Dukes of Hazards. I called them the Earls of Hazard. Right. <laughs> They're like they had a, a shtick going, just the good old boys. And then there was the team uh, uh, with Mad Dog 
and his partner that I can't even remember his name. But Mad Dog is one of the only black people in this movie. I like to play this game spot the black person when we do these movies. Um, And so he's the only one besides Sammy Davis Jr. Um, And I didn't know, maybe, do you know, John? Are you talking about Rick Aviles? Rick Aviles, yes. Was he somebody because i couldn't tell if he was i was like am i supposed to know this guy is he like famous okay. for his impressions or something i'm looking at him and he was he was one of those street performers who was big at the i believe the comic the comedy calls were really big in the 80s like the improv and all that and i think he was one of those big deals at the comedy clubs and uh like uh similar to charlie barnett who uh dave Chappelle basically was kind of mentored by um, Rick Aviles was like, uh, he died of AIDS in 1995 and apparently he was, you, most of our listeners would probably know him for playing one of the criminals in ghost. Right. That was, that I think was hired to kill Patrick Swayze or something. I haven't seen that movie in forever, but, uh, he was, uh, supposed to be a big deal as a respected character actor. This is when they were hiring comedians to be character actors in movies and such. And, I think he was thought to be a big deal for, because of that, but the career just didn't really rise to stardom, you know, with uh, some of some of these guys. But maybe he knew Hal Needham. Maybe he knew the producers. I don't. I don't know. I just couldn't figure out because every time we saw him, he'd be doing an impression, and he <clears throat> and not very great ones either. Oh, so I was like, all the, the Nixon, come on, yeah, <laughs> they were still doing that in '81. Uh, I know there were there were a lot of like cultural references in this film where I was like, Oh, this isn't age very well. <laughs> well, yeah. Like Jamie Farr's uh chic character is totally. Oh, a, uh, we got to talk riff. about the chic. Oh my gosh. Cause sheiks were high comedy in the seventies because of the gas crisis and oh. Saudi Arabia. That's when they became a big deal. That's when you saw uh chic wrestling villains and they, you know, they were, you because could not, I mean, you for sure, 100% could not do this guy. No. In 2018. I mean, it was just right. over the top. Like, oh, yes, I am a sheik. Get me my camel. Every woman must be in my harem. Right. Death right, to the infidel. <laughs> Jamie Farr is a uh, Lebanese Christian, so he was having a blast like, ripping on the Saudi <laughs> in the spot. Uh, he was. Yeah, he was, like, asking women to be in his harem. And, right. Uh, it, yeah, it was so bizarre. So he was driving his... Uh, what was he driving? Is that a Bentley or something? Oh, I, I am not a car person. His, so his, his so. super rich Saudi car. He was yeah. driving that. And he's decked out like as <laughs> if he's in the middle of the desert in Saudi Arabia. Like on his white, you know, head stuff on and his white robe and his gold rings. I mean, just I, I believe they even put darker makeup on him. Yeah, I believe they did. I yes. Think right. uh, definitely. And Bianca Jagger was his sister, which made no sense to me at all. <laughs> like, what? I, like, are they making fun of a sheik who was big at the time or something? I could not tell. It's, it's just like, it's it's a little uh, little too far in the past even for me. No, I guess, but I guess you're right. That is another kind of cultural touchstone because then, I mean, we had come out of the Iran hostage crisis and like the whole Middle East was... Yeah, well, the gas shortage—it was the gas shortage or the gas crisis of the '70s, and that was the energy crisis. They sometimes call it. Uh, That's when you saw uh, sheiks were villainized in films or uh, 
you know, given these portrayals, because before that, you watch movies from the 50s and 60s, it doesn't seem like anybody cares about Saudi Arabia, but suddenly <laughs> the 70s, that's yeah. a big, that's yeah. a big setting for thrillers and stuff. They made the first film version of 52 Pickup uh, with, I think it was Rock Hudson or something, and they changed it to the setting to the Middle East for no reason at all. It was this Elmore Leonard novel written about, set in Detroit or wherever, but then they changed the setting to the Middle East because you know, that was the big topical. center of controversy yeah. even then. Well, another topical touch, cultural touchstone con- construct in this film is the Jackie Chan and Michael Hui. Is that how you say his last name? I, I say Michael Hoy. Michael Hoy. Uh, um, they're, <laughs> they're Chinese, but they're Japan- Japanese racers and they... Speaking Cantonese. They, I, that, okay, thank you. I was like, I don't understand... Mandarin. I was think, thinking maybe it was Mandarin, but I'm pretty sure that's what they're speaking. And I guess like that in itself is so disrespectful. <laughs> it's like they yeah, aren't even it's... trying, you know, like American audience won't know the difference between these no. cuckoo Asians. And then they, of course, they hit the, the computer in their car because at that time, Japan was like really viewed as a technological giant. Like they were making leaps and bounds in, in technology. And that's how we looked at them as like little scientists and computer people. So of course, they would have the souped up hatchback rice burner with a right. front loading PCR. Right. Yes. Yeah, so. oh. and, and that was the other thing that was going on is the car wars, car mounting manufacturing wars we did mr mom on the show and that was like a big theme of that movie was the japanese uh car manufacturers coming in and shutting down these american plants because they because americans can compete yeah that movie is about the death of detroit i didn't even realize (laughs) forever and i didn't even think of the context but yeah the Mm -hmm. uh supposedly jackie chan was offended that he was he should have been he absolutely should have been i don't know why you couldn't change it to two hong kong drivers and that would even hurt the continuity of this thing but their opening scene they're on a talk show hosted by johnny yoon who is a uh korean was a korean american comedian who was uh, best known for later starring in they, they Call Me Bruce. Uh, and he's speaking in basically just broken, uh, orientalized English, wow. <laughs> which is super wow. offensive. He's not even trying to speak Korean. He's just like speaking in this horrible, uh, broken English. And, um, and all they and do is yell at each other. Yeah. I guess that was funny. You know, that was what was funny. They're just. They're chattering Cantonese, and uh, and uh, I, I assume they're probably just you know improvising on the spot, like there's no script for them to really follow. So, uh, but uh, but supposedly Jackie Chan had said in his autobiography, which means his ghostwriter put the opinion in there, uh, <laughs> he said that he was really amazed how much they would spend on catering on American films. <laughs> he was stunned by the. the the, the tables and tables of catering provided off camera. So he was, he's, I can't believe uh, Hollywood wastes this much money on a movie. Like they were astonished by it. And Michael Hooley probably was as well. Um, but yeah, it's just like they're actually a highlight of the film. For me as a fan of both of their uh, 70s and early 80s films, uh, you know, I, I just I enjoy seeing them work, even though the material is very substandard. Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge Jackie Chan fan, um, and I didn't realize that he 
I mean, I think it's fascinating what you talked about at the top of the show, which is that he was a big star already, and this was supposed to be his door, you know, the into American cinema. And it was later. I mean, so what what was it when Rumble in the Bronx? Maybe when uh, he? Well, yeah. What happened was for years, American distributors had no interest in his films. They, we can't have a film in theaters with a Chinese star. Nobody will go see a Chinese star. And um, so they and Golden Harvest and some of this can be blamed on them. They were at, their asking price for the rights to his films in America was probably a bit unreasonable. And uh, New Line Cinema made a deal for Rumble in the Bronx, which wasn't even made with a Western audience in mind, because Stanley Tong, the director, has said, "Had I known Hollywood was going to buy this one." I wouldn't have shown the mountains of Vancouver in the background because everybody <laughs> knows New York does not have mountains. <laughs> I never even I noticed. I wouldn't have shown any of that. I would have filmed more of it in New York. I didn't know. It's like, what, <laughs> so do you care about this one? It's like, and it, it was a mediocre Jackie Chan movie at the time, but New Line Cinema did such a good editing job on it. They gave it a pace that the original Hong Kong version doesn't have. And, uh, cut out a lot of nonsense and made it flow a lot better. Uh, but, but yeah, he, um, you know, he, uh, he was a big deal. And another side st- or background story I can add to this is Golden Harvest had to keep him in Los Angeles for a couple of years because there was a hit uh, ordered for him in Hong Kong. What? Because, okay, but I went into this in the Midnight Movie Cowboys. I'll, I'll repeat it here because I, I don't want to tell people to go back and dig out our old episode to find it. And I don't even know which episode it's on. But uh, what happened was Jackie Chan was making movies for Low Way, uh, who was the director who directed the first couple of Bruce Lee films. He, had, he was a big director at Golden Harvest. He left to form his own company. So he decides this Jackie Chan, or Chen Lung as they called him, he's going to be the next big thing. Uh, he's a real good acrobat. He can do all this stuff nobody else can do. So he put him in a series of films, and you can find them on videos. Uh, Spiritual Kung Fu. Uh, Snake and Crane Arts of Shaolin, there's a bunch of them. And none of them were hits until seasonal films run by Ng Si Yun borrowed him for a film called Snake and the Eagle Shadow. Snake and the Eagle Shadow was a monster hit. None of the low-A films had been hits. Jackie Chan was this guy struggling. Snake and Eagle Shadow makes him a huge star, like almost overnight. And then they put him in Drunken Master. That makes him an even bigger star, and he's big in Japan, uh, which is, and he's big in other countries. So... Jackie's making all this money with seasonal films, and he's going back, and he has to make these low-way films because he's under contract. And when he makes The Fearless Hyena, suddenly the low-way movies are making money. And so Golden Harvest says, hey, you want to come work for us because we're a bigger studio. We'll give you freedom. We'll let you direct the movies, and you can take the credit. He jumps to Golden Harvest. Low-way says, you know, you son of a bitch, I'm going to put the triad, uh, triad hit out on you. <laughs> so Jackie makes the young master, and apparently his life is threatened. Oh, my gosh. He is, he is moved to Hollywood, to Los Angeles. And he's going to make the big brawl. He's going to learn English. He's going to be based out of Beverly Hills from now on or whatever. Uh, you know, he's got a house in Hollywood. Uh, so he makes the big brawl. He makes the cannonball run. And he maintains a home in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, back in Hong Kong, Jimmy Wang Yu, who was a huge Hong Kong star in the 60s and early 70s, says, I'll settle this. I'll meet with Lo Wei. He meets with Lo Wei about Jackie's contract. And apparently 
according to urban legend, there was a huge fight. It was one of those crazy triad brawls. They're hitting each other with pipes and sticks, whatever. I don't know if it really happened, but apparently there was some violence. And Jackie suddenly owed Jimmy Wang Yu a favor and had to make at least two films with Wang Yu. Like, and one of them, but the deal with Lo Wei was off. Lo Wei could leave Jackie alone. He wouldn't, he wouldn't even go near him. The hit was done. So Jackie could wow. move back to Hong Kong and a ton of those Golden Harvest action movies we love, like Project A and Police Story and all the, all the ones, all the underground video yeah. cultists, really. Oh, my and, uh, gosh. But yet, and one of the movies for Jimmy, made for Jimmy Wang Yu was called Fantasy Mission Force, and it was bought by Lo Wei and released on video in America as a Jackie Chan movie, even though it's really Jackie has a cameo, and he actually wears some of the outfits. I think he wore the big brawl, but it's just a weird fantasy comedy. And he later made a movie with Jackie called Prison on Fire, which is not a very good film, but it has Sammo Hung and Andy Law. It's like all these people paying respect to Jimmy Wang Yu. <laughs> it's so, it's wow. this really bad prison film, but Jackie had that cleared. So one of the reasons he made stuff like the Cannibal Run, because he couldn't go back to Hong Kong at the time. He could have his legs broken. God, the Chinese film industry is gangster. That's it crazy. It is <laughs> gangster than any John Woo movie could ever that portray, is apparently. crazy. Wow. Right. It's, and that's, that's that whole backstory to trying to get Jackie Chan big in America, because then they wouldn't have to send him back to Hong Kong. and you know, low That's ways, fascinating. It's yeah, fascinating. It's, it's and he, took, he took the long way around, but he got there. Right, right. He yeah. finally became a star. I understand behind the scenes he was pretty angry that that he was so old when he was finally big in America. <laughs> but he, I mean, yeah, I guess. But the bees like that sometimes, you know. Right, right. Yeah. And Michael Hoy, uh, he's in some film with Jeremy Irons and Gong Lee, and I can't think of the title right now. It was something like uh, the music. Box. It was actually an American or British co-production. Well. Uh, join us next week on our Jackie Chan podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Michael Hui was never going to be anything big in America, but you know, th- there was this idea that okay, we'll put him in there, and that'll that'll at least guarantee the Hong Kong. Well, crowd, I'll say, as I said, I'll say this before we move on from Jackie Chan. I'm glad that this wasn't the movie that made him in this right. country because in the 80s, it's different now. Actors have more flexibility, you know, with different platforms and you can move from TV to HBO yes. to, to film. But back in the 80s and even the 90s, if you got pigeonholed, that's where you were stuck and you would never get out of there. And that's why there are so many great actors whose careers faltered even after great success. They weren't able to do anything else but the character that they were known for. Think of like uh, Mark Hamill or, you know, like Mm. not, it was very rare to be a Harrison Ford where you could move on from a iconic character and, and be that person. And so I'm really glad that he didn't get stuck in this shtick because it was really cringy. I mean, it's just of all the shows called how inappropriate and you think of like this movie was just full of inappropriate things. But one of the most was the portrayal of these two Chinese guys as, as oh, it's horrible. wacky it's horrible. Japanese guys. Even when I was a kid, I knew it was stupid. I like, I was like, he's Chinese. Like even when I was a kid, I knew the difference. <laughs> and then whenever, when they show up in the movie, you get that stupid mm-hmm. 
Japanese. Da, 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 da. Oh, God. You know? oh, <laughs> like, just, I hate it when they I, do the chopsticks. Uh, oh, it just was so terrible. It's annoying. I, I feel so bad for any Me too. Asian friends who have to do this crap. I'm so, <laughs> on behalf of America, I am sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's like the only scene I really like in Dragon the Bruce Lee story is the scene where he's at seeing breakfast at Tiffany's and he has to, he's just cringing at the whole um, Mickey Rooney. Oh, yeah. Oh. Exact. It's horrible. And supposedly that's, that's one of the only things in that movie that actually really happened. But uh, that, I can't believe that, that we is... ever thought that was okay. <laughs> right, right. It's like, what, what on earth were they thinking? But, There's, um, right? uh, I, I want to do this movie on this show, but Short Circuit, um, mm-hmm. the guy that plays the scientist in that movie, you know him. Oh, Fisher Stevens? Fisher Stevens. He played an Indian scientist in blackface. And that movie was like the late 80s. Wow. Yeah. He's not (gasps) Indian. He's a white guy from like the Midwest. Well, um, what's his name? Ben Kingsley, who played Gandhi, isn't Indian either. Yeah. That's just shameful. Sorry. (laughs) Well, Jason Jason Scott Lee, who played Bruce Lee in Dragon the Bruce Lee story, is not Chinese. He's Hawaiian. Yikes. <laughs> or Hawaiian, as it's you're supposed just, to actually say so, it. It's just like things like that. That's just like, it's lazy. You know, that's just yeah. Hollywood being lazy and not being like, I don't want to have to go cast a million Chinese people. Just, you know, find this guy. He's, got, he's Asian. Great. Put him in there. Right. Well, we don't care. It's like a, it's almost a political thing now because Marvel, when they made Doctor Strange, they, uh, they had the the elder or whatever the the mentor character is is called. He's a he's a Chinese or he's a Tibetan man in the comic books. But because it was mainland China, they they're aiming at that big audience right. there. They had to be politically correct to the Chinese, so they changed it to the uh, the white lady, whoever the actress was. I've already forgotten. Til, Tilda Swinton. Like, Tilda, I don't know. I don't Tilda know Swinton. Yeah, and and who and then they yeah, got a lot of like, flack for that because she was white, and so they're like, you whitewashed the part. It, Right, and they're just pandering to the communists in Beijing. I don't, I don't get it. It's just, well, it's such a weird, it might, spineless thing. It might be this midnight movies, the midnight movie cowboys uh, tangent podcast is <laughs> infecting yeah, well, this. But again, there's not a lot to talk about with this movie. But it might, uh, it might. Believe me. Go ahead. My listener, my listeners who are tuning in to this, who and there's going to be a lot of them tuning into this. They're going to expect this. If they had heard me stay very focused and on track on Cannonball Run, be really disappointed. Well, so, well, good. Yeah. Well, so okay, great. Then I'll just say what I was going to say. Um, it <laughs> might be that with the success of Black Panther, that we may be able to stop looking to China to be the cash cow for every single movie, because it's not done that great in China um, for obvious reasons. <clears throat> I know Americans like to think that Americans are the only racist people in the world, but basically everyone is racist everywhere. And the Chinese don't necessarily like black people or black leads. Uh, so they don't like them at all. They don't, they don't yeah. release black films in China. They no, I mean, uh, I rem- even in parts of Europe, I mean, I remember with 12 years a slave, when that came out, the Italians changed the poster to have Brad Pitt on the cover. Uh, like he's all, <laughs> he's huge. And he's in that movie for literally four minutes. Wow. But but they marketed it as a Brad Pitt movie. They would not market it as a as a black movie with black leads. 
Well, that's like John Boyega being minimized on the on Star Wars, Wars poster. Yeah. Released to China. It's like, because I always <laughs> say that's why Idris Elba is never going to play 007. Oh, yeah. Because of the exactly. Chinese. Chinese box office is too important. That's what I oh I say the same thing all the time. Like stop talking about Idris Elba Elba as Bond. It's not going to happen. He's just going right. to have to be Idris Elba somewhere else. <laughs> the Chinese well, that, that was just some Sony executive's wet dream. That oh, yeah, was never even yeah. seriously on the table. You it know, and should but, never have been. Yeah, the internet tosses that around like it was going to happen. It wasn't. He's actually too old to take over the role. I, agreed. So. Agreed. Yeah, and it, and I think they need to replace Daniel Craig. I think it's time to start over again. He keeps you know? threatening to quit. Why won't he just do it? He can't apparently it's a strategy to get paid $100 million. <laughs> he can't possibly need any more money. All he does what? is complain about those movies. I, I know. It's, isn't it weird? He seems like the most ungrateful person in uh, the movies. Yeah, but then he just keeps doing it. Like, go do something else then. But whatever. Yeah, I, I mean, look. I'm black and I love Idris Elba and I love to see black men in, in leads and successful movies. It makes me happy like most black people in the country, but Mm -hmm. I'm still not stupid enough to think that Idris Elba would be good in James Bond. I mean, let him be, I always felt like it was a shame that Tyler Perry ruined the Alex Cross franchise. Oh yeah. Cause that could have been like a Bond franchise. He was up for that. Supposedly Idris Elba was the first one considered, but then Tyler Perry had box office numbers oh according gosh. to Hollywood executives. So, and he was totally wrong for the role. He ruined it. He ruined yeah. it because he was just like fulfilling some fantasy that he had as a kid of being a, playing a badass, even though he's like the furthest thing from it. He's a guy that does comedy yeah. in drag and he does it well. Right, right. And he's very successful at it. And he's a very he's a very talented guy. Like this is not to bash Tyler Perry at all. But that was that was a real opportunity for a black franchise to go big. And it could have been one of those things where you do move actors in and out of the role and and, and right. keep it going. You know, it could have moved from, you know, black hottie of the year to black hottie of the year, you know, um, and done quite well, but just Tyler Perry just stopped it in his track. I mean, he was just terrible. He was just terrible in that role. Well, it reminded me of something that Fred Williamson had told uh, me and a, and, a, and a group of other uh, film fans at a horror convention of all places. Is he said, Hollywood operates on this idea. There's only the, and I'll be polite for the podcast, in of the year. Yeah, he said mm-hmm. Denzel is this year's in. Yeah, uh, Samuel Jackson was last year's in. They're gonna get all the black roles. Yeah, doesn't go to anybody else because they don't want me. I'm not end of the year. And, that's right. Uh, and he's right. And he's it, that the same thing applies applies to Chinese actors, to Hispanic actors. It's just this one actor that gets all those roles. Absolutely. You know, Lucy Liu is not a pretty woman. Uh, and not a pretty Chinese actress at all. It's like in Hong Kong, she couldn't get roles over there. She's not attractive enough. But she was their Chinese woman, you know, their Chinese actress of the year. Yep. She saw all the Chinese roles. It's, you know, and, and, and you know, it, it's sad. It's really weird. That's it why you'll see Fat cast as Bulletproof Monk, where right. he's supposed to a martial artist. Chayanne doesn't have any martial arts ability. I know. He's just like a shooter guy. Like, that's his thing. But like, his gunplay. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Chinese actor of the year. <laughs> he's going to get every role for like three years. The funny thing about Chayanne Fat, 
in Hong Kong, he's a comedy drama guy. They I don't, believe his it. action movies did well. They don't do well over there. The John Woo movies that everybody goes crazy for over here, they didn't make that much money over there except for A Better Tomorrow. The rest were flops. They were disappointments. It's yeah. like they didn't do as well as his comedies like Diary of a Big Man. That was a huge hit over there. That's what he's known for. Well, I believe it. Yeah, I believe it. It is, it is, it is sad. Well, well, let's try to rein it in here and get back to the movie. Sure, sure. For Jack Elam. <laughs> you got to talk about Jack Elam. Uh, is Jack Elam the doctor? Right. Oh, God, uh, yes. Let's talk about Okay, so let me, let's just set this up. <clears throat> Excuse me. Burt Reynolds and his psychic Dom DeLuise have decided that, that the, their best chance at crossing the country in time is in an ambulance because it can just go wherever it wants. And they decide that they need a patient for the ambulance and they need a doctor in case they get stopped. So uh, Dom DeLuise goes to find a doctor and he finds the craziest looking drug addict doctor he can find. It's this guy, Jack Elam, who has a very odd face. Uh, and so I guess the running joke is that he's so scary looking, like people are so freaked out by him, which I was not. I, I guess me, and again, this might be the time period. Like to me, it's like, oh, he's an interesting looking actor. Like he's an interesting character actor. But his gag in through the whole film is he's so ugly and vile. Yeah. <laughs> and I just... And he was always, uh, he always had a, a needle. He's always injecting himself with something, <laughs> which I was like, it was one of those old fashioned needles. So it was like reusable. I'm like, AIDS much? Like, holy yeah, cow. That, that was the most subversive thing in the movie because it's like, what's he in, injecting himself with? But uh, Jack Elam was like, I always grew up with him in Westerns as always the wild eyed mountain man or uh, old character in the town. Like, he always seemed old. But uh, <laughs> he, here he was kind of. He had just done a sitcom on CBS. It didn't last very long called Struck by Lightning, where he played Frankenstein's monster. Oh. Kind of maintained that look for yeah. the doctor, who is Dr. Nicholas Van Helsing, according to the IMDb. Uh, so I guess it was a reference to horror films or whatever. And I in guess. fact, it says, Give me Dr. Frankenstein. And mm. uh, so then they get Jack Elam, and of course he had played the Frankenstein monster on TV, so. Maybe it was sort of an in-joke to that, but... Well, the whole movie was in-jokes and... Right, right. You, it's it was just, you know what it reminded me of, John? It reminded me of, like, um, like this is how probably how Adam Sandler puts movies together. Like, yes, he just, it, like, gets in a room with his friends and, and they, like, have a drink or smoke down or something. And then right. everything that is just funny to them, all their inside jokes, they just write down, like, a loose sketch and then he films it. right. And sometimes it works great, and sometimes it's just like this. Yeah, he's uh, he, they just get their buddies together, and whatever yeah. they find, they put on on screen. Like uh, there's there's a scene in Man on the Moon, a, a film I didn't like much, but it did have one scene that I actually think is is very telling. Is uh, Andy Kaufman and Bob Zamuda, some their agent or an executive or whatever, tells them, "You guys are just writing to amuse each other. You're not writing for the audience," yeah. which is very. I think it's very true, and there's a lot of that in here. Although it's hard to argue, it was such a huge hit. Now I'm starting to really wonder how on earth people paid to see this again and again with the type of numbers it was making. But, but again, um, it was one of those things. It was like it had Burt Reynolds, and then it had this whole cast. And you, 
remember, like now we can see people that we like anywhere. We can look up their interviews on YouTube. We can, you know, watch them on the late night shows. They uh, post to their Instagram. They have Facebook fan pages. We can, we have full access to the celebrities that we love. But then you might see them on a late show or read an interview in Rolling Stone or you went to see mm-hmm. their movie. That was the only way right. you saw the people that you liked. So the, this film is packed with big names. So, right. You, know? you, didn't, you didn't have to make as much of an effort right. to see all these stars in one movie. And this is actually one of the last all-star cast films I can think of uh, for that era. It was kind of the end of that, um, which I think really maybe that started with something like The Towering Inferno, where <laughs> the bottom of the poster would just be that, that line of squares with all of their profile pics. In there, you know, yeah, yeah. Burt Reynolds yep. as the racer, <laughs> Jack yes. Elam as the scary doctor, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, Adrian Barbeau as the as the cleavage, you know. It was just like they would have all that stuff identified, and uh, this is really the last of that. And you got maybe the last film that believed in all star cast power or whatever, you know. It's just uh, you don't, you're never going to see that anymore simply because nobody's a star. But or when you do. Every now and then you'll see one, but when you do, you should always be suspicious because when you have that many stars packed into, uh, you know, what, 90 minutes to two hours, every uh, every lead actor will have it in their contract to get so much screen time. No one's going to work for less than, you know, whatever, five minutes of screen time or 10 minutes. Well, when you've got eight or nine or 10 huge stars, That's a lot of time to have to commit to each character that, and not that many characters can be that important to a script. Do you know what I mean? So that's what happened with A Wrinkle in Time. One of the things that happened with it. Oh God. I know. Well, I knew, I remember seeing that come out and I was telling my husband, this movie is no good. And I'm going to tell you why before I can tell you right now, it's no good. There's too many stars in it. They all need screen time and that's going to come at the expense of the story. Mm Mm-hmm. It's totally true. Uh, the uh, the other thing to that is Hal Needham said on the DVD commentary that most of the actors in this film only worked on it for like a couple of days. Yeah, I, I read that too. I and, was like, wow. And I, be- I believe it. He said maybe at most they would work two weeks on the film and made a fat paycheck because he'd just film all their stuff and then film all the stunt stuff later or you know wow. with a different unit. I and, guess, uh, yeah, when you take all the stunts out – there's not a lot left. You get a, a Dean Martin uh, NBC show stretched <laughs> out to 90 minutes and shot on 35 millimeter film is what you get. Uh, it's uh, it's it's odd, but oh, the other notable thing in here is Jimmy the Greek Snyder yes. as a speaking role. Yes, and uh, he was a he was a big deal in the 70s and 80s on CBS Sports. I didn't know much about Jimmy the Greek. I'm Canadian, oh, so right. Um, I, that was a little bit before my time as American. Um, but then I watched uh, 30 for 30 on him a couple years ago. Whoa. It was so, first of all, 30 for 30 is a great documentary series. I mean, even if you don't like sports, it's, it's amazing. It's all so well produced. Um, fascinating. But yeah, I sat there and watched like a two hour documentary on Jimmy the Greek. It was, he was a really fascinating guy. Yeah. I read his autobiography that was published in the seventies. I found it in a, a bookstore. Oh, wow. Used bookstores try to find old stuff that's 
hard to find. And I read it and he was a really interesting guy. And all it took was just that kind of off the cuff remark in an interview and yeah. his career was over. Yes. Yes. He said for people who don't know, I mean, he was a big sportscaster at a time when again, we only had one or two ways to see sports on TV and that was on network TV. And so CBS, he was huge and he made a comment. What did he say? Said something, um, did he say something about black guys and being quarterbacks or something? Or uh, He said that the black athlete is the best in the field because in the slavery days, uh, basically they practice eugenics and they would get the strongest uh, male black slave mm-hmm. and have him breed with the strongest female slave. So there Which, was by this... the way, is true. <laughs> that, is the, that is the crazy That's what thing. what I hated about it's that. It's actually it's just... true. It's like maybe it's in poor taste, but is he really wrong? But I watched that thirty for thirty, and they were all acting like he was wrong. It's like I, I don't think I don't he was. But, Why? I know. don't. Again, it's like it's all in who says it because I right. hear black people say that all the time. I hear yep. black people say the same thing all the time, and we do know, you know, that part of history. We do know that slaves were treated like cattle. Why is it right. hard to imagine that they were bred that way? Why is it that once black people were allowed into professional sports that they dominated? You know? Right, and, and yeah. you'll notice there's not a lot of like foreign exchange athletes from like Kenya coming right. over dominating right. in football. It's like there's um, there there could be some truth to that. It's oh my like, god, John, let's just stop now, or we're going to get kicked <laughs> off the internet. Yeah, you'll be done with <laughs> iTunes. It's over. <laughs> we can let's just we're we're going to shut this down right now. But I'll just say that Jimmy the Greek controversial comments, but it's like, but prove him wrong. I mean, there's just ugly truths in our history that are, you know, well, except everything else. It's like yeah, why do no. you make why, a good why point. do we? Why do we have to reject what he said just because you don't like the tone he said it in or whatever? You yeah, know, I, it's I an ugly truth. Yeah. Yeah. But I, the, I, I, I don't know. As a black person, you know, I, I kind of take it as a compliment, too. It's kind of like, yeah, black people are better. Sorry. It's like this. <laughs> You're like the $6 million people. You yeah. know, it's just like. <laughs> Sorry about that. We, we, we bred the best <laughs> and created Jim Brown. You know, like, oh, man. what's the problem there? We're going to get so, so many. Oh, complaints. you're done with iTunes. If you have an iTunes page, it's, go, it's over now. No, don't. So. Please. Everyone go and rate this show positively. Give it. We, we, we do not condone this. We are simply talking about history. Right. Uh, but it is, it is fascinating to see him in this film. And I think yeah. maybe he's the guy that Sammy Davis is talking to on yes. the phone. But I can't, yes. I can't remember. I yeah. had to watch this. I thought I could read it on Amazon Prime. Me too. I, I was all arrogant about it, and I looked, and it's like, it's not there. And it's like, oh, damn. And so I found it on Daily Motion. Me too. I go, <laughs> so had to watch I, uh, it on the computer. We cannot find this movie anywhere. Yeah, so because I traded in my HBO DVD years ago. I was cleaning out my DVD shelves. I had to make room for all these Hong Kong movies you have to know every obscure thing about. So I got rid of that, and I had to watch it on video Daily Motion last night and i even cracked open a coors beer that i got at some <laughs> easter egg hunt we did a couple of weeks ago sat there watching a burt movie and i didn't even realize the irony that it was coors beer oh was gosh there's so much but, drinking uh, and driving in this movie too oh God. hey it was allowed back then i guess i'm like like they were just popping beers in front of the cops and stuff you could have open containers in your car back then i believe oh. because it, it wasn't against the law and they they started I remember when I, I grew up in Mississippi, where the with probably the last state to pass those laws, where the about the open container, and then it became an open cooler law or something. It was it was ridiculous. But uh, I often wonder because I, I think I saw this in like a magazine uh, 
article or something, but it seems like a couple of beers actually made people better drivers because it took away some anxiety. <laughs> Think about that. How well, I do know that they do say that um, drunk drivers are less likely to be hurt or killed yeah. in a car crash they cause because they are so relaxed. Right. So I know. It's like the Andromeda strain. Yeah. You ever seen that? So, yes. The towel gets wiped out except for the baby in the town drunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a a very sad remake of the Andromeda Strain on A and E a few years ago. Forgot about that. Yeah, oh, wow. they did not do it justice, sadly. You people with your cable. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't have cable TV. I haven't had it in years because when I went Roku. Um, I forget they they they've done all these remakes yeah. and I think I heard about a Cannonball Run TV show at one point. Yeah. I, it's like I, I don't even want to imagine there it. There is one out there. I I brushed across it when I was doing some research, uh, but it's about the real Cannonball Run. Um, oh well, there was yeah. also there was a Cannonball Run three, but in America it was called Speed Zone. Right, I saw that. I get there was like, we can't even put this name on this movie. It's so bad. Well, Golden Harvest had some sort of deal in Canada, and I think they got a, a tax shelter deal. Oh. And it made a lot of really unwatchable uh, B-movies in Canada, like uh, Deadly Eyes. And uh, they, they made the first big film for, with Keanu Reeves called Dream to Believe, I think. What? And they could have locked out Keanu Reeves on a long-term film contract and did not. They didn't see a future for him. How and, could you yeah, have, I, though? He is... I don't know how you could have. There, it's just hard to picture the trajectory of his yeah, career. Yeah, yeah. They, they didn't... They, I don't think they knew what to do with North American films. I think yeah. Because uh, Golden Harvest is very focused on the Asian market. Sure. So they didn't really... They didn't have much far-seeing uh, vision for the... North American market until they got they picked up Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which uh, I think one of the studios had abandoned, and so they picked it up and financed it and then sold it to New Line Cinema, and that became a huge hit. Yeah, I love that so, movie. Uh, like, right, so they had a market <laughs> for that. Yeah. But, but yeah, they had a Canadian uh, tax shelter deal. You should do a show on your your homelands. <laughs> Ridiculous tax shelter credit deal that led to a flood of slasher films like My Bloody Valentine and uh, crazy uh, exploitation movies. It, it's pretty nuts when you look into it. Wow, that's crazy. Well, talk, well, getting back to the racism angle, talking about Jimmy the Greek, there was a moment in here where I was like, what? Again, this is a, a indicative of there not being a script in this movie that it's just little vignettes of guys talking to each other. So they've got it set up so that Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise meet uh, Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin along the road, you know, their paths cross. Uh, and they just have a two or three minute where they just stand there and insult each other. But yeah. it's really lame insults. And what's Burt Reynolds is like, oh, listen, um, you know, why don't you get out of my face before I hurt the chocolate monk over there? <laughs> oh, gosh, like, what? what? Only he could get away with that. And then. you know that that wasn't written down. You know, you no. know. <laughs> that's, that's, the old, that's the old Florida <laughs> Seminole Indian and Bert coming out. <laughs> <laughs> or Cherokee or whatever tribe he claims. Like, that, that's, that's the old Bert. <laughs> that's Bert's Florida days. Oh, my God. Coming out at the improv. And, there. Then, they were, and you know, then they're 
comeback was like, oh, well, you and the Goodyear blimp over here, like it's Dom <laughs> DeLuise, who isn't that fat, but I guess fat for 1981. Yeah. Uh, and I just was like, you know, I saw, um, I've watched plenty of footage of, I'm a huge fan of the Rat Pack, and I'm a huge fan of Sammy Davis Jr. especially. And I've watched plenty of footage of him when him and he and Dean Martin used to do their shows, like in yeah. Vegas, and like when he's amazing. He's a, he was an amazing singer and dancer. No, no, no. He is incredibly talented. Absolutely, uh, I deserved to be a huge, huge star, um, and had a very interesting life. But um, right. sometimes there are moments when you watch some of the older footage, and it's just them goofing around on stage and stuff. And it is like, this is, it, it must have been a lonely life for Sammy Davis mm-hmm. Jr. Like, he just was the butt of the joke for so much because he, and, and part of what made him great in the Rat Pack is there were moments where he was allowed to be a star and was allowed right. to be just a singer and a dancer. And it wasn't about his race, but there were times when, of course, that gag would come up. I mean, it's an easy go-to. I mean, even nowadays, you know, race is an easy comedy. I, am, I am guess you are referring to Frank Sinatra picking him up on stage and saying, I'd like to thank the NAACP for this award. No, I <laughs> But I, I laughed, but yeah. I, I listen to old Rat Pack shows, and uh, the uh, that's, that's some of the stuff I pick up on is the super inappropriate uh, humor they were doing, and with Sammy as the butt of the jokes and stuff, and uh, it, it it's something else. <laughs> but in a way, it was like it is, you know, in 2018 to my 2018 ears, it do, it does sound horrible, but but you, these guys were also on the cutting edge of integration. Yes. You know what I mean? Like they were, they were sure they were making those jokes, but Sammy Davis Jr. wasn't performing without them. You know, they were like, right. no, this guy is one of us and, and we don't care. You know, we're not obsessed with race. Uh, one of the reasons a lot of people don't know how much capitalism played a part in the desegregation mm-hmm. of the Jim Crow era. And a lot of people don't know, but a lot of that has to do with Vegas. And the yeah. Vegas performers were like, you know, we had already been ordered to desegregate, but that doesn't change people's minds. And the Vegas performers were one by one saying, look, if you don't let Ella Fitzgerald walk in the front door and stay in the penthouse suite like me, I'm not performing mm-hmm. there. If right. you won't let Dorothy Dandridge swim in the pool, I'm not performing there. And then they couldn't, they stopped getting the big names. They stopped getting Frank Sinatra. And then finally they had to change the rules. Right. Sinatra, suppose it was said on the road that Sinatra would, would not stay in a hotel if they didn't, uh, if they wouldn't let Sammy stay there. Yeah. Because you know, a lot of the hotels had the kind of hidden segregation or whatever. It's, it's like, you can't stay here. It's like, Sinatra's like, well, then I'm not staying here. You know, and they'd walk out. Yeah. So, I mean, they were on it, you know, for their day and age, I certainly wouldn't classify them as racist. But in 2018, you still can't help but but look at Sammy Davis Jr. and say there had to have been days where he was like, "Okay, come on, <laughs> like, <laughs> enough is well, enough." Sammy was uh, Sammy was fascinating because he was uh, he supported Richard Nixon during uh, Nixon's presidential run, and uh, so did Jim Brown. This is, these are forgotten aspects of that of culture. Um, he was a quick draw artist. He could, he was an excellent at like 
you know, drawing a gun. And he shows it off in the few Westerns he did and his guest appearance on The Rifleman that I mentioned that I always loved. And uh, he, he, he had a lot of talent that a lot of people didn't even realize because now they see him as this sort of pop culture joke in movies like Cannonball Run. And it's unfortunate that that's kind of his last work because uh, there's a lot of skill to the man. And, uh, oh, yeah. I mean, all the Rat Pack, they were all multi-talented polymaths in a way. Sinatra was a better actor than he's given credit for. And uh, Billy Wilder had once said, you know, if he would quit partying all night, he'd be the best actor in movies. Well, Sinatra's, but, yeah, Sinatra turned down some pretty juicy roles later on in his career because he couldn't yeah. get over the idea that he was aging. Right. And he, you know, and he wanted to still be the young, hip Frank Sinatra that would, you know, have breakfast in Beverly Hills and then just on a whim, get on a flight to Las Vegas and right. And then drive to Palm Springs. And, you know, that would be his week, but he, he turned down, uh, uh, dirty Harry, mm-hmm. which we did on the show. And, uh, I think death wish as well. And I just keep thinking, um, like a movie like dirty Harry, what that would have made him into. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, it would, have, it would have needed just... it would have needed Don Siegel directing it. That's the thing. <laughs> it, would, <laughs> it, would, it would need that Lalo Schifrin score and, and everything. But uh, um, a lot of Dirty Harry, I, I think I give credit to the fact that it became a Clint Eastwood project and it got Don Siegel on it and yeah. made it the movie it is. But uh, but Sinatra, much better actor than he was ever given credit for. If you watch Man with a Golden Arm, it's stunning. No, he's like, he was a great actor, but I think he was killed more by his ego. Yes. Than opportunity. I think he just never, he didn't want to take roles as he was getting older that made him seem older. He didn't want to like play against type, which you have to do if you're going to be a serious actor, you know? So anyways. And back, and back then, and this is something you have to explain to people today, especially young people back in those days, if you turned 40, you were old. Yes. It was over. <laughs> it was like, that was it. It's like you watch teen movies from back then. The parents couldn't be more than 40 and they look like old people. Yes. We, yeah. <laughs> Something we noticed on Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, how everyone over 30 might as well be 60. You know? Right, right. It, there was no uh, concept that, no, you were going to go to the gym, you're going to work out, you're going to take Pilates, you can take Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, you're going to, you know, you're going, you're going to take these uh, spa trips and all. None of that was in the public conscious at all it's like it you were old that was it give up yeah play golf and watch uh the andy griffith show and gomer pile because you were done it was over you were not going to you were not you forgive it give up on your looks don't exercise who cares drink beer all day it was strange it was a very different culture back then it was it most certainly was and and before we we need to start wrapping this up but there was one other scene that i thought was just grossly inappropriate and I cringed the whole time. It was when they kidnapped Farrah Fawcett. We haven't even talked about Farrah Fawcett in this oh, movie. Oh, it's horrible. It's like... Yeah, she just plays this dumb, annoying... I don't know. Is she a reporter or something? A photographer? I couldn't, I couldn't tell. I she, thought maybe she was a journalist, but... She was hanging she, around, like, because she was attending some environmentalist you're right. thing. And then she... There's a side story that is completely unimportant with this guy who's got it in for the cannonball run people. And so he follows them across country because he's going to bust them and bust the cannonball run. He's just a buttoned up cranky pants type. And she ends up somehow driving with him. I don't know why, but she's driving with him and she's not very intelligent. And then their car breaks down and Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise pull up in the ambulance and... 
And they they tell the guy, oh, we'll help you out. And while he's got his back turned, they grab Farrah Fawcett, shove her into the ambulance and yeah. take off. They literally kidnap her. And then she spends the next few minutes wondering, like, are they going to rape me? And then there are a couple of jokes about. Paul yeah, there was like a ga- there was like a gang, a gang rape. There's joke. a gang rape joke in there. <laughs> and then they drug her. Yeah. Then they yeah. drug her because the cops pull them over and then they're like, OK, we have to. She has to be sick, and she didn't want to participate, obviously, because she's been kidnapped. And right. so they drug her, and then she, then she's like, "Oh, officers, help me!" But then they're like, "Oh, she's just, you know, she's just out of it. Ignore her." <laughs> <laughs> but but then she's totally down with it once she talks to Bert in his uh, wearing his wife beater and uh, you know yeah. talking to her for like five minutes in a what also seemed like a completely unwritten part. You know, it's just, it, it's supposed, and the, yeah, like I said earlier, the, no chemistry at all. None. It's two biggest sex symbols of the 70s, and you can get them on screen together, and it's like uh, two dull uh, sticks are not going to make fire. Yeah, there's never like, there's never a moment where she's like, okay, I'm in this, right? you know, let's figure something out, or let me help you guys, or all right, fine, if I can't get away from you guys, then I'm going to help you guys get to California. Like, there's never a moment where she comes on board with the plan. There's no... I want the money, or I want part of this money. I'll give it to my tree uh, (laughs) charity or whatever. It's like... uh, Because back then, environmentalists were all seen as jokes at movies, and uh, it it was easier to make fun of them. And uh, But there's never anything like that where she could have just said, hey, I could use part of that million to help my foundation or whatever. It's like they didn't even think about it. No, she literally, literally was just a face that words came out of occasionally. (laughs) I know. And the sad thing is, like, half this cast is dead. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Bird is still alive, but nearly everybody else is dead, except Mm -hmm. for, like, Jackie Chan, Michael Hoy. (laughs) Bert Convy's dead. Roger Moore has passed away. Uh, Jack Elam has passed away. Gosh, yeah. It, it, it's like, it's really odd. Is Dom DeLuise yeah. alive? Uh, he passed away a while back. Oh, yeah. But his two sons carry on his acting tradition. I think of yes. him every time I see them. <laughs> I do. I think of Dom DeLuise every time I see one of those boys. I, I always, I, I, I see them, I think of Dom DeLuise and Nipsey Russell cutting it up on the Teen Martin <laughs> as the gay barbers. But, uh, but yeah, it's just, uh, it, it's strange when you realize that Burt Reynolds is still alive and so many else, so many of the others on this, on this movie are not, and um, some are not even in the business anymore. And uh, the, so this movie really doesn't have, it wasn't good for anybody's career. Well, I think we get that out of the way right there. It, it was, was yeah. very bad for everybody. Uh, the, uh, even though it made a ton of money, but you realize like 80% of the movie is shot with a tow truck carrying somebody's car so they can do all their dialogue scenes in the cars. Yeah. Oof. It's <laughs> it's not good. It's yeah. not good. And then there's like a bunch of ridiculous, yeah, like car crashes. That's I still I still can't figure out the, the Burt Convy thing. I don't I don't even understand Burt Convy's character. Which one's that? That's the he was like a Wall Street guy, and he had the oh fat god. Dude. See, I totally forgot about him. Wearing it like was so pointless. Yeah. Yeah, it, I I couldn't figure that all, out at all. I I couldn't even figure out their, their, what was the joke there. It's like, man, 
people think everybody at Wall Street was gay or something? I, I don't know. Oh, there was that one moment, too, where another clearly improvised moment where the cops are pulled over. They're talking to Dean and Sammy and Bert and Dom. And I guess to distract them, like Dom DeLuise holds Bert Reynolds' hand and he mm-hmm. says something like, we're very close. And I guess the gag there is that the cops were so disgusted that they were <laughs> homosexuals that they just let them go without a ticket. See, that type of gay panic is what, what movie comedies need these days. <laughs> Gosh. And when they're walking away, the cops are like, there's no, I didn't think there was guys like that in St. Louis, Missouri. And oh, my <laughs> brother is from California. They're all over the place. Or oh, I don't know. It's just oh. like, what is this? What? I, I imagine <laughs> if it was made a couple of years later, it might have had AIDS jokes, which are very oh. findable in comedy from that from from that time period. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. If just a couple more years, it could have been in there. But uh, it was so and then they did play it in the outtakes and it was clear that it was improvised. And oh, yeah, the outtakes are the, the good thing about the outtakes is it inspired Jackie Chan to start putting the outtakes in. His yes, movie. I was just going to say, isn't this what gave him and his outtakes are better than his movies sometimes. Right. Uh, well, yeah. now he he got so bad towards the end of his uh directing career that he started faking outtakes yeah, yeah. for take real play. <laughs> uh, a stuntman that worked on Operation Condor told a friend that <laughs> that uh, he said, all of a sudden I noticed between takes, Jackie's laying on the ground and his crew guys are fanning him. And it's like, but he didn't get injured in the, the fight scene we just did. It's like, and then I realized, oh, he's faking this stuff for, wow. the, for the real filming like bad takes or in or fake injuries just for the for the the real at the end so my uh my son just just i mean in the last three months just became a jackie chan fan mm-hmm. uh he's just sat down one day and put on rumble he asked me about jackie chan i can't remember why like what brought and i said we'll start with the first one i saw was rumble in the bronx so start with that and then he just made started making his way through his later career like when he started to be popular in America and but yeah right. like the outtakes are his favorite thing yeah I, Jack I, I would I would advise your son needs to go back and watch Snake and the Eagle Shadow I'll let him know Snake mm-hmm. and the Eagle Shadow then Drunken Master although the English dub is very profane um Project A and Police Story I think when you watch those that's the gold that's the top top of the top Wheels on Meals Dragons Forever stuff he made with Sammo Hung that that's the best. And then everything else after that, like, I didn't like the stuff he made after he made it big in America. I actually was depressed because Aww. it's like, he's making the movies I don't like, and that's what's <laughs> being released in America. And meanwhile, I have to watch old bootleg tapes of this great stuff he did, you know, years before, which now we buy all that stuff on DVD very easily. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Snake and the Eagle Shadow, I saw in a theater in 1982. And as a kid, they'd actually got a PG rating and they released it English dubbed. Uh, four walled it in theaters across the country and it did very well and I loved it. It just showed me a whole new perspective on Kung Fu movies and didn't see anything again for a while. Uh, but Snake in the Eagle Shadow is very, that's Jackie in his prime. That was his breakout film. I and will let him know. Yeah. That's terrific Absolutely. Um, I'll just wrap up this movie. I mean, everybody gets to the finish line, uh, even though. 
you know, the race started out with people punching a time card. Like, everyone didn't start at the same time. You punch a time card, and then supposedly it was like you punch out when you reach California, and then whoever made it in the quickest time wins. But the movie forgets all of that, and it just devolves into a foot race to the finish line. Um, and then Dom DeLuise blows it. it. Barbeau did uh, punch a time card when she, when she got in. But but yeah, it was it was like it was her and Captain Chaos running for the finish. It line. didn't make sense though because they were running as if yeah, sh- should, they should be driving. They should be driving, and then the time shouldn't. The t- either the time <laughs> is or isn't a factor, you know. Right, like, right. Then it's not. Then they don't need the time card if it's just who crosses the finish line first. Yeah, Hal Needham probably thought, oh, nobody will care about this sort of thing. Yeah, I guess no. he was right. And, then, then, yeah. He says we're we're too drunk making this. No like, doubt. We, oh, we only have gear. everybody. Uh, we only have this set, this location for another two hours. We just let's just do it. Right. No, it's I, like, oh, oh, there was one one joke in the film that would be totally lost on most viewers. Was they made fun of Evil Knievel without naming? Okay. All right. Thank you it, for bringing that up because the Canyon. I was like, there. Th- I understand that this has got to be an Evil Knievel joke, yeah. but I don't understand the reference um because right. i you know was like six years old when that movie came out i don't remember it but i was like oh okay the evil there must have been a thing with the grand canyon again folks if you're really young and you're watching this there was a time when whole families would gather around the television to watch a stuntman jump over something big like cars or a body of water just it was the thing you did. <laughs> right, right. Uh, or in the Karate Man Mike Stone's situation, I think he was going to break the Guinness World Book of Records for the most flying kicks on boards to break on television, and he did it. So it was just, it was just crazy stuff like that. Exciting like, that was time a, in America. <laughs> you, you had three channels. It's like, <laughs> and you did not live this plugged-in electronic lifestyle. You had to go out and do stuff and achieve stuff. No, and, I remember when Michael Jackson would release a new video, and it would be like everybody – like eight o'clock Wednesday night on NBC, Michael Jackson's new video for Bad will air. And like, I remember us pulling the, the TV into the kitchen <laughs> so we could watch it while we were eating dinner. Like, that is how we watched TV. Right. It was an event. And, uh, or is he going to do the moonwalk? Yeah. You know? <laughs> What's he going to look like? Is he going to look more like Diana Ross on this video? The you know, it's just yes. like. The answer was always yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. More and more. <laughs> he looked more like Diana Ross and Diana after a while. Oy. And, uh, but that was the thing back then was uh, it, you went out and you had to do stuff. You had to get have something to back up your celebrity rep. You had to have whatever it was. And, and athletes, it was, it was the same thing. You know, watching an Ali boxing match on TV was a big deal. Um, you know, watching any boxer back then was a big deal. It's like uh, none of that is even – it's all disposable these days. And so Evil Knievel was going to jump the Grand Canyon. Did he make it? I don't know because I, I forgot to look it up before the show, but I know that noted. I noted that, and I wondered if there was a professional hatred of Evil Knievel because Hal Needham used to do crazy right, stunts like right, that. Right. That was one of the things that I think that got him to be a big deal in the stunt industry. Was I see some of his stuff, and I think it was a slam at Evil Knievel. So it was like a professional, one professional slamming what he considered a non-professional or a criminal. Because I guess Evil has a has a bit of a bad rep, and maybe he worked with him on Viva Knievel and didn't like him. Maybe, so. 
could have been a hit yeah. uh, snap there. You know? Another yeah. inside joke that didn't really translate into 2018. Right. But, um, uh, yeah, okay, well, that's that's fascinating. Um, <laughs> well, then the movie ends. There's one last Roger Moore gag. Um, mm-hmm. And then the movie ends. Everybody's happy for some reason, even though... It was only the boob twins that won, but everyone's really happy. And right. yeah, it's a wrap. Uh, the, I mean, this movie was awful. I hated every <laughs> second of it. I was so glad that it was only 90 minutes. I yeah. just was like, I always ask, and I'll ask you, John, could this movie get made in 2018? Not with this content. Yeah. And yeah. I'll, I'll add an interesting footnote. It's actually sort of a ripoff slash remake, not really a remake because they didn't pay the original uh, creators, uh, of two previous films, uh, The Gumball Rally, and there was a Roger Corman production called Cannonball starring David Carradine, which, interestingly enough, was partially financed by uh, the Shaw Brothers of Hong Kong, the competitors to Golden Harvest. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, Cannonball was not, I don't think it was a huge hit. I mean, it, did, it made it probably did decent by Roger Corman's standards. It was directed by Paul Bartel, who also directed Death Race 2000, and um, it was. I think it was probably based on the the actual Cannonball Run race, just like this film. And um, Gumball Rally, I think, was inspired by the stories of, of the Cannonball race. I don't know the the history on that, but it's actually a, a well loved movie by movie buffs because it's probably the funniest and um, probably the best of the three. Is like in terms if you're comparing like, you know, going by the standard of a real movie, like Gumball Rally is more. It stars like Michael Sarazen and Raul Julia, and uh, it's probably more like a real movie. It used to play on the CBS late movie all the time back in the 80s, the early 80s. That's a another reference of the past that nobody will get. But um, but that was uh, those two films. This was just a ripoff of that. This is how Needham kind of ripping <laughs> them off and making way more money, you know, and with <laughs> way more star power. Uh, because the other two were not, it wasn't the Hollywood squares racing across the country. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that. Let's go to uh, Roger Ebert's review. Oh boy. Yes. He wrote this January 1st, 1981. Um, would you care to guess how many stars he gave this? Star and a half. Five. What's that? Star and a half. A star and a half. You are one star too much. He gave oh, wow. it half a star. Oh, okay. Wow, he really... Yes. Uh, he loves, Roger really loves the common man. <laughs> I was say, well, I read, if you go back and listen to our Dirty Harry episode and our Death Wish, even then it was so funny to hear, like, how much... Like, it really was pitted as, like, conservative values versus liberal values. And he mm-hmm. just hated that it, it seemed like... It was just, it's, it's actually very interesting to watch and then listen to our episode nowadays because it's kind of the same conversation, but in 1972 about like, well, this is, uh, feeds the gun nuts and it's, you know, this is just a, an excuse for the second amendment psychos to get excited. Oh, <laughs> I mean, that was like in 1971. I mean, like I think dirty Harry was like 69 or something. Right. It's crazy how. It just kind of all comes back around, but, but Dirty Harry was seventy-one. And I didn't even know they were having 
big gun control debate. I didn't either until I read the reviews and all of the reviews, because at that time, like you said before, like a movie reviewer was a coveted position and it was a hired position. And so they were always coastal, right? Like New York, L.A. So they had a totally different view of America than the rest of the country. So almost every review was like that. It was like, this is just red meat for the red states. And it was like, wow, we were talking like that. That probably sold the film. No, it absolutely did. If I was some beer drinking Joe six pack that liked to go hunting during deer season or whatever. And I read that review. I would say, well, I'm going to show this pencil neck geek. What's up. I'm going to go see this movie tonight. I'm going to take the family. (laughs) And show Junior what real values are. No, well, it's interesting because, again, I guess this is all becoming like me plugging the Dirty Harry episode, but it was really a fascinating one to do. But um, there is a scene in the movie where um, Clint Eastwood is chasing uh, this murderer and he chases him down and the murderer gets out. Like, he's just a college kid, basically. He's like whiny hippie guy. And he right. chases him down. And the kid's like, don't kill me. You know, don't shoot me. And of course, Clint's like being all Clint Eastwoody and and uh, the the research that I did on it, you know, they were saying that this was his way, like it was a response to the hippie culture. And so right. it was at that time where there were two, there was a culture clash. There was like the traditional like World War II who gave birth, parents who gave birth to the baby boomers. And they really um, loathed kind of the hippie evolution. Right. And one of the issues that they were having at the time was that the the hippies, which they've been very successful at, for better or for worse, particularly in the state of California, were trying to relax like the laws, relax criminal laws, and and were punishing people for you know defending their homes or defending. It was more about like, look, these are people are disturbed. We have to know why people commit crimes. You know, we right. can't spend. And so this movie was a response to that. It was saying, and same with Death Wish. It was like a response. Like it's time people take the law back into their own hands and like stop letting these politicians and mm-hmm. you know PC hippies who don't live in our world dictate what we are and aren't allowed to do to defend ourselves and, and our communities. So it's just right. interesting that you say that, because that absolutely was a theme at that time. Uh-huh. Uh, well, so, yeah, well, New York had, like, sky-high crime rates. Yes. And, and I think California just had Manson and other crazy cults and Zodiac. Uh, Dirty Harry, I think, was based on the Zodiac murders. And uh, it was it – was, those were seen as, like – I mean, I remember the attitude when I was a kid – who cares what California and New York do? Yeah. Like they were not yeah. liked in flyover country. It's like, and it was, and the feeling was mutual and it's like, now we just don't admit that or something, but it's really what that's the, okay. A Burt Reynolds movie. Burt would even tell you himself. His movies did great in flyover country, middle of the road, America. They did not do great on the, on the coast. Yeah. And I can and see like, why. Right. And he said, I made movies for, People who were neither right nor left, but they went to church on Sundays and they went to the football games on Friday night to watch their kid play football. And that's who I was making these movies for. Yeah. And, 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 and those, he knew his audience. Yeah. Yeah. He sure did. Well, let's, we're running a lot. We're running so long. Sure, sure. <laughs> epic, <laughs> epic, uh, how inappropriate there. I, it is. You know what? I get, but I just, I love talking about movies. I could do it for hours and hours. So I haven't quite learned the, to discipline myself. 
time wise because I like a long podcast. You know, like yeah. I like it when I see a podcast and it's two hours and like sweet two hours of podcast time. But I know everyone's not like that. Here's what Roger Ebert had to say: the Cannonball Run is <laughs> the Cannonball Run is an abdication of artistic responsibility at the lowest possible level of ambition. <laughs> In other words, they didn't even care enough to make a good, lousy movie. Cannonball was probably always intended as junk, as an easy exploitation picture, but it's possible to bring a sense of style and humor, even to grade zilch material. This movie doesn't even seem to be trying. Burt Reynolds sleepwalks through a role he's played several times before, but never so indifferently. He's a a hotshot driver in a big illegal cross-country road race, First one to California wins. That means Reynolds gets to drink a lot of beer, talk like a good old boy, and get in the middle of a lot of crashes and other stunts. Um, and he talks about Hal Needham and his relationship. Uh, it, the film ends with outtakes, spoiled shots, during which somebody breaks up or says the wrong line or otherwise goose. It's supposed to show us how much fun everybody had. Alas, the outtakes don't look much more goofy than the takes they intended to put in the movie. <laughs> Cannon- wow. <laughs> yeah. Cannonball assembles a giant cast around an absolutely minimal amount of screenplay and allows them to kill time expensively. <laughs> There's not much plot and no suspense. The filmmaker's excuse, no doubt, is that they were really making a comedy, not a road race picture. That would work if there were any laughs in the movie. But it just looks like the cat. But just look at the cast. It's like a cattle call. It's like an actor's guild picket line. It's like Hollywood squares on wheels. Some of the actors are talented. Some are not, but they look equally awful in this movie. At one time or another during this unspeakable experience, you can share it with not only Burt Reynolds, but also Roger Moore, Farrah Fawcett, Dom DeLuise, Dean Martin, looking as if a big pizza pie hit him straight in the eye. Sammy Davis Jr. looking like a severe case of vitamin deficiency. Jack, he oh, wrote this. I swear that I, he that wrote is this. Mean. I know. That sounds like racism. A there. little bit. Roger. A little bit. Jack Elam, Adrian Barbeau, whose role consists of unzipping her jumpsuit, which is true. What's wrong with that? <laughs> What's the problem? Jack, uh, Terry Bradshaw, Jackie Chan, Burt Con- Convy. Jamie Farr, Peter Fonda as an aging Hell's Angels, Michael Hui, Bianca Jagger, Molly Pycon, Jimmy the Greek, and Mel Tillis. This isn't a cast. It's the answer to a double acrostic. Well, if I read that review, he did a way better job of selling that movie. (laughs) Bert just drinking beer? (laughs) It's like, come on. That's basically what it was. Bert with his best toupee ever in his prime. There, there you go. Uh, would you recommend anyone seeing this movie? Um, no. I, the, I, I discuss uh, the topic of you know the the cult of uh, Burt Reynolds uh, Zen thought with other uh, fans, some of them younger, and uh, we often agree. A lot of his movies were pretty bad. Uh, it's actually you could probably count on your hands how many were good. And, uh, and he made a lot of movies in the 70s and 80s. And this, I would say, well, if you want to see what kind of deteriorated his career, watch this film. And you might get it. 
Oof. It's like, and Jackie Chan fans, I wouldn't really recommend it. I said, unless you want to fast forward to his scenes and um, where the fights aren't really as good as what is shot and edited in his Hong Kong movies. But, you know, he gives a, he gives a you get to see him beat up Peter Fonda. I guess it's kind he of He gave it his best. I mean, yeah. he didn't He's have trying. anything to work with. I just, that was probably, if I had to say the most inappropriate, even besides all of, like, the Farrah Fawcett stuff was pretty cringy, but that just, making those two Chinese guys Japanese, and then just the slapstick, ooh, funny Asians. It, it was right. it was sickening. I really didn't. I mean, and I, I I'm not a prude. I like I can contextualize movies. You know, I can contextualize humor. Mm-hmm. I, I get it. But even that was, it was a bridge too far. It truly right, was. Right, It's like, we're kind of just waiting for Jackie to do the split kicks and stuff. And, you know, yeah. That's, or, uh, I can't remember who beat up Bob Tessier, the big bald biker. Who's always, he's always yeah. the big evil bald guy in every movie. Yes. But, um, <laughs> I think he knocked out Roger Moore or whatever, but, uh, I can't remember if Jackie got to tangle with him. I don't think so. I don't think so. No. But I was thinking, uh, and a, a friend of mine had suggested this a while back. He said, Maybe Hal Needham should have directed the big brawl with Jackie Chan instead of Robert Klaus. And I was like, damn, hmm. he probably would have worked out just fine for that. Like he yeah. went because he's a stunt and directing Jackie, who is very, you know, is also was also a stunt man. Yeah. And did. And I think you might have had a better uh, working chemistry there than what Jackie had with Robert Klaus, who just wanted to get a paycheck and get the movie done. Um, but I, there is a, a fun story I once heard that I guess Hal Needham visited Jackie in Hong Kong and went in a ride in one of Jackie's Mitsubishis. And apparently Jackie is a horrible driver. And they said that Hal Needham walked out of his car, Jackie's car, just white as a ghost. <laughs> Jackie is hell out of, probably did it on purpose. But, but yeah, it's like that's uh, the Jackie Chan element is one of the reasons I think people even bothered to watch this in the nineties because well, Jackie had that, that's fascinating. I mean, I really, there was so much more to his part in this film than I uh, had ever imagined. I'm so glad you came on to talk about this movie. This yeah, was because like the movie didn't movie. imply any of this great backstory. Oh, that, all of that would have been a much better movie. We should have made a movie about Jackie Chan getting his legs broken in Hong Kong for messing yeah. with the uh, wrong. Also, there was almost a movie made that would team up Burt Reynolds and Jackie Chan as secret agents in like 1988. What? The project was on the table. Golden Harvest was going to uh, produce it. Burt Reynolds was going to direct it, but Jackie would direct the action scenes, and it didn't get made. Why? It's like, I'd love to see the story behind that because they were friends or they got along really well and they almost made that movie. And boy, the action movie market of 1989 could have used it. Then maybe that was part of the problem is that the action heroes, you know, we had Bruce Willis and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Stallone. That's all the room that there was. Yeah, you needed a sweaty... guy who spent a lot of time with a personal trainer shooting a gun yeah that's all it required to be an action star at the time so wow so much for that would have been so interesting yeah and i'd like to find out more about it but it was never made so it's it's hard to track any of that stuff down well well hey listen john where can people find you online and your podcast uh midnight movie cowboys.com and if you go to that page you'll see links to uh my 
Twitter page, uh, which I actually don't recommend. Uh, it's just <laughs> mostly political trolling. Uh, Hunter Dusing, <laughs> my co-host, and uh, Stuart Balk, and Stuart and Hunter were the originators of the podcast, and uh, a lot of credit goes to them for uh, creating what I think is the best movie podcast out there uh, that releases stuff on a consistent basis. And we're also on The Phantom Sway. We're one of the featured podcasts on there uh, when we, we get a show out. And usually we're on there on Mondays. But, uh, but yeah, it's like just find us those two sources and go from there. We also have a Facebook group. Once you get into it, you know, if you want to discuss the movies with us, you can find us on a Facebook group. We're very strict about who we let in, though. But once you're in, you can't get out. Uh, unless you do some uh, some of that screeching, you just put <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna cut you fast. But but no, it's like our show's very different. It is not this type of uh, meticulous snobby talk that you find on other movie podcasts. And I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's very we're we're just guys. You know, we're just blokes. That's what talking. I I that's what I like. I just movies are for regular people. You know, and that's right, right. And and I try it. to. I try to bring a lot of knowledge into it, what I know about movies and just from a lifetime of watching and absorbing this stuff. Hunter's got a lot of experience too. And Stuart brings the Australian perspective. And I think it's a very unique show that I think people would enjoy. And it's, it's often very offensive. So, you know, if you find the cannibal run offensive, please don't listen to us. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, no, that I highly recommend it as well. Um, and yeah, you can find them over at Phantom Sway. We always post our shows. Uh, we are big fans of MMC. Um, of course, you can find me on Twitter at Kira Creates. You can follow this podcast at High Pods, H-I Pods. We took a bit of a break while I was making this short film, Minty, uh, which should be uh, premiering in June or July. So now I'm really glad it was a great experience, but I'm glad that's over. And now I can get back to podcasting because what I, that's what I really love to do. And I love talking about movies. So, but, but definitely um, fans go ahead and check us out at uh, tubmanmovie.com. You can follow uh, Tubman movie on Twitter. Um, we've got a GoFundMe. We're $2,500 away from our post-production um, goal that's just to put some of the finishing touches on it like sound and stuff but everything else is in the can um, and I want to thank everyone who's donated so far and of course uh, go to iTunes and rate this podcast um, and review it that helps us a lot and again thank you to our guest John and uh, uh, you guys good luck in, in the future and uh, if we do another Burt Reynolds movie uh, or, or Jackie Chan I'll have you on I can't really do a Jackie Chan movie some movies are too good for this podcast right. you know so I, I like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure turned out to be actually too good for this podcast we still have fun talking about it but it's actually a really good movie well if you watch The Protector with Jackie Chan and Danny Aiello that actually <laughs> might be a perfect you talk about inappropriate that movie is super. Oh, okay. Profane. If you get the American version, uh, it's 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 quite an experience. It's it's really bad, but just like watchable in a oh god, I can't believe how bad this is and how how they're blowing it. Well, I'll put it on the list. And by the way, fans, if you've got something to add to that evil Knievel conversation we were having earlier.
Phantom Sway. We're full of good stuff. Like that restaurant where you can get never-ending bowls of pasta. Man, that's so good. Ugh, I'm hungry right now. So, so hungry. Phantomsway.com.